Hello, I'm Billy Jacobson, a partner at Allen & Overy focusing on white-collar criminal work, including FCPA defense investigations and compliance. This is part of a series of chats recording during this period of self-isolation. Our focus is typically solely on issues of anti-corruption enforcement and compliance. Today is a bit of a divergence from our normal fare, as I'm joined by my partner, Bill White, to talk about three recent Supreme Court decisions, which together promise to have a profound impact on how and whether the SEC brings enforcement actions. These decisions will, of course, apply to FCPA cases, but they also have much wider application. We'll spend the bulk of our time discussing the very recent decision in Lou versus SEC decided in late June 2020. But to set the stage for Lou, we'll also discuss the Gabelli case from 2013 and the Kokesh case from 2017. So let me welcome Bill White. Bill is a partner in ANO's DC office. Before joining ANO, Bill served in the SEC's enforcement division for eight years, including as a branch chief and a senior trial counsel. Welcome, Bill. Thanks, Billy. Appreciate it. So, Bill, the first of the cases I'd like to discuss is Gabelli versus SEC decided in 2013. Would you give us a quick rundown of the question before the court and the court's holding there? Sure. Gabelli involved two portfolio managers that allowed an investor to market time a, a, a fund in exchange for an investment. So, essentially, they allowed an investor to do something uh, that was otherwise prohibited in exchange for a benefit. And the SEC alleged that this was a violation of the anti-fraud provisions of the Investment Advisors Act. The issue of a, uh, a fund in exchange for an investment, so essentially they allowed an investor to do something uh, that was otherwise prohibited in exchange for a benefit. And the SEC alleged that this was a violation of the anti-fraud provisions of the Investment Advisors Act. Uh, the issue in the case is that the conduct uh, occurred more than five years after the SEC brought suit. Uh, and so the defendants in that case objected, saying that the, the five-year statute of limitations in 28 U.S.C. 2462 prohibited the case. The district court agreed and dismissed the case, but the Second Circuit reversed, finding that the discovery rule applied. The discovery rule basically uh, is a doctrine that says the statute does not run until a claim is discovered or reasonably could have been discovered. The discovery rule is grounded in the fact that fraud cases are different and there's an expectation that you need a, a sort of a different rule. And that was the question before the court. Does the five-year clock begin to tick when the fraud's complete or when the fraud is discovered? In order to, to uh, resolve this, the court looked at the plain um, language, plain meaning of the statute, and found no basis uh, in the statute for uh, a discovery rule. But to the contrary, the language, which in part is when the claim first accrued is a, is a key part of that statute. Um, the language leads one to conclude that it starts to run, as it says, when it's accrued, when all the elements of the claim are met, not when it's discovered. The court also found that the discovery rule had not been applied to government agencies until as late as 2008 and uh, did not want to apply it here. Chief Justice Roberts wrote the opinion for a unanimous court, and it, it seems a, in itself a not very remarkable ruling, um, but it is the first of a series, as you said, of cases where there's reaction by the court to perhaps overreaching by the SEC. And the second uh, in time is the Kokesh case, which was decided in 2017. 
and to some extent supplements Cabelli, right? It does. Um, it, Kokesh is a, again, it's a, the facts are fairly straightforward. There's an investment advisor who was found to misappropriate about $35 million uh, worth of investor funds. However, much of that misappropriation occurred outside of the five-year time period of the SEC suit. And so Kokesh argued that the disgorgement, the amount that the court had ordered uh, that he pay, which was the entire $35 million, was uh, subject to the statute of limitations and therefore it was unavailable as a remedy for the SEC. The, the lower court rejected that and uh, as did the as did the Court of Appeals. But the Supreme Court, and this time it was Justice Sotomayor, looked at this and looked at really the simple question, is disgorgement subject to the five-year limitations period? And the court looked at it, found that disgorgement, at least as applied by the SEC, bears all the hallmarks of a penalty, including that it was imposed by the court for violating a, a public law. Essentially, the violation is against the United States. And agencies acting in the public interest, also that it was imposed for a punitive purpose, for um, deterrence and to deprive someone of ill-gotten gains. And then most interestingly for the Liu case that you referenced, the court does say that quite often as applied, um, disgorgement is not compensatory, meaning it's, it isn't money to be given back to harmed victims, but it's paid to the treasury often. Often it exceeds the profits that are gained and often it's without consideration of business expenses. And so it's a, a gross number, not a, not a net. So what the court was essentially finding, if I, if I have it right, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is that the, the holding in Gabelli, that the five-year statute of limitation would apply to cases brought to achieve penalties, would apply in the case of uh, an action brought to bring disgorgement because disgorgement is a penalty. Yeah, that's exactly where the court is. Interestingly, though, and, and again, sort of foreshadowing the, the recent decision in lieu, the court said that a sanction or a penalty, it, it can serve sort of more than one purpose. And so one of its purposes, as the court found in Kokesh, is that it's a penalty, but it left open the question as to whether disgorgement could qualify as equitable relief in SEC cases. And that all set, sets the stage for Lou, which was decided just recently on June 22nd of 2020, where the question before the court was whether the SEC has the ability to bring an action for disgorgement at all. Is that right? Yes. And this is a case where, again, the facts are not particularly remarkable. It's an offering fraud case where the promoters lied to the investors and misused the proceeds. Uh, the SEC won at the district court level, and the court ordered disgorgement of basically all of the money raised jointly and severally between the, the two defendants. Lou objected, saying you didn't account for business expenses, and disgorgement really is, is something that is beyond the SEC's ability. Because if you sort of take a step back, there's no specific statutory provision that gives the SEC the right to obtain disgorgement in federal court. Um, however, the SEC is authorized to seek equitable relief. And the, the real question that the court addressed is, is disgorgement within the mandate of equitable relief that it's allowed to, um, to order? And the court, uh, in a very straightforward manner, in the beginning of the opinion, says a disgorgement award that does not exceed a wrongdoer's net profit and is awarded for victims 
is equitable relief under the statute. The court gets there really with two concepts. One, the court seems to say that it's not an either or, it's not a penalty or equitable relief, which is what Lou had been arguing, but that something could be a penalty, but under certain conditions, perhaps it could also qualify for equitable relief. And the court found in looking at sort of the history of equitable relief in this area that, that a disgorgement-like remedy is part of equitable relief that courts can order. It just needs to be limited in a number of ways. So given the sort of conditions that the court seems to put on disgorgement qualifying as equitable relief, is it your view that now the SEC will have to show that disgorgement amounts would A, come from the actual net profits of each individual defendant, and B, be returned to victims some way, somehow? Yes. And, and, and I would sort of, as I think about it in the, the framework that I use, I would flip that around. And I would ask the second question first, perhaps, which is, are there victims that money can be returned to um, as, as a threshold question? And if the answer to that question is yes, then I think you can move on to figure out what is the net profit of the wrongdoer deducting any legitimate expenses, imposing limitations on certain types of joint and several liability. But if the answer is no, if there are not victims that money can be returned to, it does call into question the SEC's ability, I think, to obtain disgorgement. The Supreme Court did leave a narrow window, and I think this is going to be something that's that's litigated significantly. The Supreme Court left a, a window and said, essentially, that your current practice, the current practice of obtaining disgorgement, not returning it to investors, and giving it to the Treasury doesn't pass muster. They left open the question as to whether, in certain cases, the SEC could come up with something else that would pass muster under principles of equity. But at the same time, the court seems to be saying, we don't want lower courts to uh, to invent or to create new doctrines. We want lower courts to look at what traditionally has been available in uh, courts sitting in equity. And see if, you know, if the SEC makes an argument, see if it's something that can be justified. So let's turn our focus to FCPA cases for a moment. And with with your primary question in mind, what do you think the SEC might argue as to who the victims are in FCPA actions? FCPA actions, just to back up one step, are, of course, brought under the securities laws. And so this case, the Liu case, the Kokesh case, and the Gabelli case, of course, directly apply to FCPA cases. So who do you think the the SEC may argue are victims of FCPA cases, and and how might they be compensated? Those are great um, questions, and I am sure that the SEC is feverishly working on uh, on answers to those questions right now. I think it's going to be tough for the SEC to identify a victim. There are a lot of possibilities. There are current shareholders. There's potentially former shareholders. In an economic sense, there's the competitors. If there's a bribe that's been paid to win business, they most likely were competitors for that business that didn't win it. Perhaps they're a victim. Perhaps it's the governments uh, involved. But all of those potential victims create real problems. The issue of the government being the victim I think is a is a problem because it puts the SEC in too difficult a position as to whether to pay money to a government that may or may not be either corrupt or otherwise in line with um, with U.S. foreign policy. 
Um, and I'm, the SEC, I just don't think, is going to want to go there. There's really no mechanism to pay back and pay money to competitors in the country where the bribe took place. That analysis um, would just be too difficult for a U.S. agency to, um, to really to put together in most cases. But that leaves the traditional victims in SEC cases, the investors, the shareholders. But it doesn't make sense, for example, for current shareholders that you're going to take money from them as disgorgement and then pay it back to them. So that doesn't seem like it's a it's a workable possibility. Um, and then finally, with respect to uh, former shareholders, you can identify former shareholders, but there's going to be a real question as to whether they've been harmed, especially if you can envision a scenario where the revenue um, and profit has been enhanced by the bribe. It's going to be difficult to say that they're a victim of the of the conduct. So interesting. And these same questions have been pondered by the DOJ with regard to the ability for DOJ to um, achieve restitution from companies uh, in particular in FCPA cases. And really, DOJ hasn't figured it out. Restitution is really, really rare in these cases because those questions of who the victim is, is are, are really thorny. Let me turn to a different question, which is one that struck me the first time as I was rereading, Lou, yesterday, frankly, which is that if the SEC follows the teachings of Lou and turns disgorgement into an equitable remedy, then does disgorgement lose the attributes of a penalty, which Kokesh found that it had and on which the Kokesh based its decision that the five-year statute of limitations applicable to actions for penalties would apply? So in other words, does Lou invalidate Kokesh or might it down the line moot? I shouldn't say invalidate, but but does Kokesh become moot if the SEC follows the teachings of Lou? It's certainly a possibility and it's a very good thought. I mean, if the SEC confines its disgorgement cases to what's described in the court, it's looking less and less like a penalty um, and more like remediation. The only thing I would say is that in Kokesh, it wasn't the court had a number of factors that supported its conclusion that disgorgement was a penalty. Some of them were the way the SEC was obtaining disgorgement, and that's been corrected by Lou. So if the SEC follows Lou, that element um, sort of goes away. There were a couple of other elements in Kokesh, though, that may still hold uh, Kokesh as, as good law, namely that this is for a public law, not a private action, and deterrence is one of the main reasons the SEC has talked about for disgorgement. But the possibility is open down the road. The SEC could take a view that now that we've adopted this new form of disgorgement, assuming they do, the statute should not apply. A few more questions before I let you off the hook on this. One might assume that the SEC, if they feel like they can't bring disgorgement in a particular case, perhaps they would seek to simply increase the penalties in that same case. How might they do that? Traditionally, the SEC has tried to some degree to um, calibrate penalties in cases, FCPA cases and others, with a combination of the magnitude, the profits, the revenue, um, the conduct, but also looking at precedent. And so they've, they've tried to, to put that together. When they've looked at the precedent in the past, they've typically looked at it as a combination of, well, there's a disgorgement award of a certain amount, um, there's a penalty award, and they often think about the disgorgement award when calculating what they're seeking in a, in a penalty. And so they're thinking of this as, as a package. 
the precedent may be off a bit because of that. If, if the SEC is not entitled to seek disgorgement, the precedent of penalties that may be, as a minor factor, considered the fact that a significant amount of money was already being paid, that's going to cause an issue for, for precedent. I think the commission itself is likely to want to stick to the precedent. If a certain type of case was in a range of say, a penalty of $1 to $5 million, they're going to want to try to keep it in that range, not increase it to $10 million because there's no disgorgement. I think the staff is going to want to increase uh, the penalty amount so that the overall amount is somewhat similar. And so I think there's going to be some tension um, between the staff and the commission on this, and I think there'll be some room for advocates to make arguments to the commission and to the staff to, to try to, to keep precedent in line with, uh, with the new wave of cases. Let's turn to uh, administrative proceedings, Bill. Dodd-Frank gave the SEC the authority to seek disgorgement in administrative proceedings. Do you think the SEC might go to their own administrative tribunals to seek disgorgement that maybe they think they couldn't get if they brought an action directly in federal district court? And how might the result differ or, in fact, be the same? Because uh, I think there's probably an argument that the administrative proceedings are bound by the same rules as the district courts. It, is, it would be a typical reaction by the SEC to decide to take things in-house, but I, I agree with you. The statute allowed the SEC to get disgorgement administrative proceedings. And they, the statute didn't further define what disgorgement meant. Um, and there is language in the Liu opinion, which basically says when Congress uh, included the word disgorgement, they weren't trying to capture a certain type of disgorgement that, that we think and we're saying today is improper, they were using the term disgorgement to refer to the disgorgement the way we, the Supreme Court, think of it. And the way that the case law exists going back all the way through uh, the early uh, 1800s with respect to the ability to get ill-gotten gains from wrongdoers. So I think there's a pretty strong argument that disgorgement in the administrative proceeding means the same thing as in federal court. But that is another place the SEC could go and could try to argue that Congress meant something different and litigate the case. But I think, and, and a lot of commentators have been suggesting that this is what's going to happen. I think it's a little less likely given given the language in the Lou case. I, I would tend to agree, agree with that because it would seem obvious that even if the administrative law judge, the SEC administrative law judge rules in a way that conflicts with Lou, then the case gets appealed to the federal courts and Lou will obviously be applied. Yes, I think, I think that's the most likely. Final question, Bill. Are, are there other remedies that the SEC typically seeks that may come under attack in light of you know these three cases? I think so. And to answer that question, i just take a step back. I was at the SEC in the 1990s and brought cases that did all of the things that the Supreme Court says now that you can't do with respect to disgorgement, right? and several liability, not deducting uh, business expenses, and not returning funds to victims. And so the idea that, one, disgorgement would be subject to uh, to the five-year statute of limitations in, in the Kokesh case or two, that these limitations would be um, in place were hard to imagine, especially for folks at the SEC over the past couple of decades. That's not to say there weren't people making these arguments in law review articles or occasionally trying in court, but this was not sort of the majority view, especially of, of practitioners and especially of, of people at the SEC. 
So it does beg the question, what else that's in the toolbox of the SEC could come under attack? And to me, the most likely thing is the injunctions that are entered in federal court cases and even the cease and desist orders that are entered in administrative cases. Both of those tend to go on forever. Um, there are permanent injunctions, and there's really little chance of getting the uh, injunctions dissolved. People tend to, to move on um, with their lives, or if it's an injunction against the company, they move on, hopefully not violate the law. But the SEC typically doesn't bring cases to enforce those prior injunctions. And so I think that the granting of sort of an unlimited permanent injunction is probably the next thing that's going to get thought about. And I think you're going to see a range of limitations um, on the length that injunctions can be in place and the conditions on which injunctions or even cease and desist orders may be lifted. Well, just to sum up the key takeaways from all three cases, it seems now to be clear that the SEC has five years following misconduct to bring suit for both penalties and disgorgement. And as a result of Lou, disgorgement should be limited to the net profits of the misconduct, and those net profits should be returned to victims. Is that a fair encapsulation of the last those three cases? Yes, I think that is. And uh, I think there will be litigation in the district courts um, to sort of hash out what exactly uh, that means, whether there are any exceptions, but those are the few takeaways. And that that litigation will be so interesting to follow and hopefully be a part of. So, Bill, thanks so much for your time. I think it was an interesting discussion and really appreciate you joining me. Thanks. I appreciate you having me. It was a great discussion.